NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! What Happened When Monday is brought to you by First Family Mortgage. We've just been awarded the number one best in business award for 2016, and we continue to win this award because we know how to make saving money easy. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket, and if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. So if you're in Alabama, Colorado, D.C., Florida, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, Maryland, Mississippi, New Mexico, North Carolina, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, or West Virginia, First Family Mortgage can get you a better deal. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your next home, we guarantee to have the best deal. We even offer you a three-year guarantee. If rates improve in the next three years, we'll refinance you again without charging you another origination fee or an appraisal fee. And if you've got credit card debt, stop making the minimum payments and get out of debt for good. It just takes 10 minutes at 1FMC.com. That's 1FMC.com or call us toll-free at 888-425-0105 or if you've got questions, just Message me on Twitter at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. This is the MLW Radio Network. And you're listening to What Happened When Monday, right here on the MLW Radio Network. And uh, the man of the hour, Mr. Tony Schiavone. Tony, what's going on, man? How are you? Conrad, I'm doing great. And I just want to say it has been uh, quite a week. It's been an eye-opening week. It's been a week that uh, I've been very, very humbled by some of the things that have been said about our uh, our podcast. Uh, you and I talked about this. I was kind of unsure if anybody would really like it, but apparently... After week one, uh, fans really like it, and I really appreciate all the nice things they have said. And thanks to you, Conrad, for all the hard work you've been doing. Great stuff. We are humbled by the response. You guys downloaded this podcast at a record pace. We set a new MLW record, more than 109,000 downloads in the first 36 hours. That's a big deal. Uh, and, Tony, this is kind of your reemergence into wrestling after a long stint where you had kind of put all pro wrestling behind you. Isn't that right? Exactly. I uh, and let me say this, and, and I do want to respond to one thing. Usually, you know, there's a, there's some people out there that that don't like me and don't like the stuff that I've done, and I understand that. You you can't please everybody. Uh, but I did see one, uh, I don't know, listener. Maybe it wasn't even a listener uh, who said, "Why is Shivani doing this? He hates wrestling." My response to that is, "Fuck you." <laughs> You don't know anything about me. I've loved wrestling all my life. If you go to midlanticgateway.com or midlanticgateway.net, uh, I think it's .com, uh, there's a story about my love of pro wrestling in the years before I started working at Jim Crockett Promotions. Always loved it. I decided when we went down in 2001 that I would go another direction. I decided I would change. I decided that it would be time for Tony Schiavone to try to reinvent himself. Uh, I tried to get on with the WWE, and they said no. And then I thought, you know, uh, I know we did some XWF stuff for a little bit, if you'll recall. But I said, you know, it's I'm not going to hop around going from making uh, crappy personal appearances with uh, one independent promoter from the other. So I'm just going to go a different direction. I'm going to forget about that life. And so I, I never was 
I never hated wrestling. Never was mad. I read one time or heard one time that Rich Landrum, who was the longtime yeah. uh, announcer for Worldwide Wrestling, uh, I think I saw an interview that he did where he said, Shivani's bitter about the sport. And that blew me away. I'm thinking, hell, I've never even talked to Rich Landrum. I don't even know Rich Landrum with the exception of watching all those worldwide wrestling programs that he did years and years ago, which I loved. I thought he was a great announcer. Uh, To me, that kind of took me aback. I don't know how that got out there. So anyway, I uh, I think (laughs) probably based on the downloads, the good thing I kind of held out for quite some time because maybe there's now – People want to hear what I have to say. Absolutely. I think a lot of people grew up with you as their soundtrack to wrestling. You know, in our promo for the show, I described you as the voice of professional wrestling below the Mason-Dixon line. And I think you could argue that that's factual from 83 to 01. Who was a bigger part of pro wrestling as far as, you know, putting the lyrics to the music, so to speak, than you? Um, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, Conrad. Well, that's nice of you to say, kind sir. But uh, we do need to address, um, man, people are fired up. It looks like you have went on a blocking spree. Before we started uh, doing the podcast, you were blocking folks left and right. What was the rationale? And are you going to stop blocking people? Or what's the way to make sure you get unblocked from Tony Schiavone on Twitter? Well, I, I, I do block trolls. And I don't have to explain what a troll is to anybody out there because if you are a troll, you know the fuck you are one. <laughs> uh, so I, I block those people. Uh, I always thought I always saw Twitter as a part of my life, and why not block out all the bad shit? Right. So that's what I did. There's a couple of things that happened when when people would say, "Oh, this is the greatest tweet in the history of wrestling," uh, or uh, "That'll put butts in the seats." The uh, greatest tweet in the history of wrestling. Okay, I've heard that a million times. I get it. If that's all you got to say to me, then, you know, block. Kind of stopped doing that. Uh, Butts in the seats pretty much uh, was one of those things that WWE fans thought that it was my fault. It was Tony Schiavone's fault that they lost the ratings war. I am so very honored that you would think I would have that much influence in a ratings war. And so very honored that you think that that was my freaking idea. Uh, so I kind of got tired of hearing that and I blocked that. But I'm not blocking people anymore unless it's some of those trolls out there who, you know, come up with a new name, a new email address and try to say their same old shit. You know, I, uh, blocking is a great thing, Conrad. <laughs> yeah, I think you it, enjoy it. It, 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 it makes uh, – do, do you don't block anybody, I don't think. I mean you just kind of – you slough all this stuff off. Uh, I – when, when I when I block a person, I'm taking that person out of my life forever. <laughs> bye bye. I love that you take such great pleasure in throwing the block down. It's fun oh, for me. It makes me feel good. It make it gives me a woody. Oh well, okay. Well, so now <laughs> we know what what cracks the Shivani code: Deborah's tits and blocking people on Twitter. <laughs> If Tony Schiavone's ever on a dating show, I, I, I enjoy breasts from Tuscaloosa that were involved in professional wrestling, and I enjoy blocking people on Twitter. Um, yes, yes. Someone on Twitter described you this past week as the Bob Saget of professional wrestling because they grew up with you as kind of the, the equivalent of a TV dad. Uh, you were always the good guy and the squeaky clean guy and the white meat baby face, so to speak, and now... 
on the podcast, you're dropping F-bombs left and right. People were a little shocked by that. How do you respond to being categorized as the Bob Saget of professional wrestling? That's uh, that's kind of that's that's a that's a odd analogy. Uh, I, I can tell you this: that uh, I do go to mass every week. Uh, I was a good dad, uh, a great husband, uh, and a, a pretty decent grandfather. Now, uh, your grandfather? But, yes, I, I did am. not know that. Yes, uh, I have three grandchildren. Uh, so anyway. Uh, now I'm feeling depressed and freaking old. Thank you very much. Uh, no, but I, I think that uh, I think anybody that knows me, that the guys on the football crew at the University of Georgia, uh, people who are uh, the baseball players at in in the Braves organization who I've I've been around and traveled with, Brian Snitker, who's the manager of the Braves, uh, he and I traveled for uh, two years together. Uh, they know me as a guy that drops f bombs all the time. Uh, so basically what my life is up to, uh, Conrad, is I, uh, I've i always cursed. I'm from a small town in Virginia. Uh, I cursed a lot. I've used the word, word as one person said, which I thought was pretty funny. Shivani uses the word fuck like a comma. Uh, <laughs> I, do, <laughs> I, I, do, I do have my share of bad, uh, colorful language. and um, But then I go to confession on Saturdays. Uh, and I'm clean by Sunday again. So uh, I, I, here's a story. I was uh, I put a link on Facebook about uh, when we first announced this, right? And on my Facebook page, and I do want to say something about Facebook very quickly in a moment. But I got a response from someone uh, from my hometown that can't wait to listen to it, and I I looked and remembered that she was a wife of a Baptist preacher. Mm. So I went on Facebook and said, a disclaimer to all my friends back home, uh, this is kind of a colorful <laughs> language, uh, R-rated, so don't be offended by what I say. Uh, here's another thing I need to say. If you try to friend me on Facebook, I'm going not to accept it because Facebook I use for my friends back home uh, and I use for the people who want to see what my grandchildren look 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 like and grow up. I probably should, we should probably get our own Facebook page if we don't have one already. Dave Silva, if you're listening, hook us up. We need your help. Yeah. And then, then uh, you can follow me and follow Conrad, but that, that uh, Tony Schiavone uh, Facebook page is kind of like my own personal uh, album to my friends back home that I went to high school with. I don't really uh, friend people that I don't know. It's worth mentioning, Tony and I aren't even friends on Facebook, and he doesn't follow me on Twitter. So uh, this is when hashtag old people tweet. We're still figuring things out, and we're trying to uh, to figure out uh, how to entertain you this week because we are really going to, as we like to say on the Pritchard Show, make some chicken salad out of this chicken shit this week. Our topic that won the poll and uh, you guys decided what we were going to talk about. We gave you three topics that included Jim Crockett promotion stuff. Instead, you picked the 20th anniversary of the NWO pay-per-view sold out from 1997. We're going to give you four new topics at the end of the show. So stay tuned. We're going to tell you how to shape the show, where to go vote, all that good stuff. Uh, but before we get to what happened when... The NWO were in their only pay-per-view in January of 97. Let's kind of set the stage by finishing out 96. 
Um, at the end of Halloween Havoc in Las Vegas in 96, Roddy Piper appears and challenges Hulk Hogan uh, right as the pay-per-view is going off the air. And that set up Starcade 96, which, of course, is WCW's answer to WrestleMania. And they hold this in Nashville. Uh, and that is actually the same month that the now Bridgestone Arena opens, but it's not open here. So they hold it at the 9,000-seat Municipal Auditorium, and they sell it out weeks in advance. Uh, which Meltzer says is eighty three twenty seven, paying one hundred and thirteen thousand dollars, and he reports that scalpers were getting roughly two hundred dollars a ticket, which is unheard of at the time for WCW. And right. at that show, uh, NWO merchandise accounts for nearly fifty eight percent of their sixty thousand dollar take at the merchandise stand. So, Tony, at the close of ninety six, we're about a year into Nitro, we're six or seven months into the NWO. Uh, and I think you could argue this is probably the best that WCW's business has ever been as far as ticket sales, merchandise, ratings, buzz, just about every metric around. Would you agree that this is WCW's strongest business up to that point? Yeah, there's no question. We uh, we were kind of, uh, I don't know if starstruck is the right word, but we were certainly uh, kind of in awe about how things were moving along. I, I can remember... And uh, you can uh, help guide me on this. I can remember Spring Stampede of 94 was the last pay-per-view we had before Hogan came aboard. Uh, and, uh, and it's a great show. Yes. But still, there was no Hogan in that show. Right. Um, Hogan came aboard that summer uh, when we were down at Disney. But but I can remember business, <laughs> using JR's old term, business really picking up. Yeah. Between 94, that, that year, 94 of Spring Stampede uh, and our summer show in 94 down in Orlando. Uh, then here we go two years later and we're doing gangbuster business. So I, I don't think there was any question. We all knew that we were on that we were doing things correctly. Uh, at least that's what we thought we were doing or things were going well. Put it that way. I'm not so sure we ever thought we were doing things correctly. I think in the business, you always kind of. There's a big second guess thing going on. You always second guess yourself. Sure. Uh, but I think we knew that things were going only two years after Hogan uh, came aboard, that things were going well. So I want to ask a quick question about Nashville. I've always been curious about this and, and found it interesting. You know, in a time when WrestleMania moves around every year, WCW had a pattern here where they ran the uh, municipal auditorium in Nashville in 94, 95, and 96. And they would do this with Starcade the next year at the MCI Center for 97, 98, 99, and 2000. That's the MCI Center in D.C. And we'll yeah. talk about D.C. a lot in the future. But what was the reasoning and rationale behind bringing the biggest show to the same town every year? And why was Nashville the spot to do it in? Uh, I, I can't I, I can't uh, answer or comment to why Nashville was a spot only to say that uh, they it probably always was uh, did real good business for us. Right. And the, the, the building probably worked out a pretty good deal for us. I'm just trying to think as as I would the late Zane Breslov would would say or maybe Gary Juster, who worked uh, that behind the scenes as well. But but the reason we didn't hop around as much as the WWE, we did not have uh, we did not have a lot of buildings still at that time that we could go into. Oh, so, so Vince still had the stronghold with some businesses. Yes, yes he did. Yes, he did. You never saw the w, you never saw WD, WCW at Madison Square Garden, right? Uh, and some of the other towns up in the Northeast at that time, you still didn't see us. 
Uh, now, I guess it's illegal to do business like that, to be shut out of building, buildings. But come on, we knew what was happening. Sure. So uh, I think at that time, and I think there was still a part of us, Conrad, that thought that even though we were moving ahead and getting big, there was still a part of us that was still very small time uh, back then. Uh, and uh, and I think that was probably a part of that reason or maybe most of the reason. I can remember sometimes there was a time when Ole Anderson was our booker and we did television. Uh, we did television every week at either Gainesville, Georgia or uh, Cobb County Civic Center every week. We did the same places because we had good fans every time. Now, that was pre-Hulk Hogan right. in those days. That was like in the early 90s. But we, but again, think about this. We were a, a national company. Sure. And we were still going to Gainesville, Georgia and, and Marietta, Georgia every week. So there was still this, this feeling that even though we were a national company, that we were doing things on a regional basis. Do you think and, that was more because – of the the cost of travel, and maybe it could have been a cost-cutting measure to do something nearby, or was it a matter of convenience for those who had the ability to make the decisions? Was there some sort of backdoor deal where guys got kickbacks from buildings for running it yeah. that consistently? Uh, no, I can't answer that. I, I, I can't say, you know, guys got kickbacks. Uh, I'm sure that uh, – that the building people and our people knew each other quite well. I, I always think that it's lack of confidence, probably lack of confidence, lack of confidence to being shut out of buildings uh, or, or going and drawing shit. Right, right, yeah. right, right. I mean, you t- let's say, let's say we're going to take Starcade to, uh, well, I, I know we ran Vegas and of course we did quite well in Vegas, but, Let's say we're going to have Starcade go in St. Louis and we don't draw well. Well, we've gone all the way to, to St. Louis and we haven't drawn a good house. And how does that look? And here's another thing you got to think of. Uh, we did back those back then uh, a pay-per-view event on a Sunday. I know this sold out was on a Saturday. We did a pay-per-view event on a Sunday. Uh, and then we would have to go to a town, a, a, some town to do Nitro. Right. And then down the road, we would do we would do a town and night. We would do a Monday nitro, and then we would do we would tape Thunder on a Tuesday. When Thunder first started, we crazily taped did Thunder live on a Thursday. But they would have to find a couple of towns that were within uh, close proximity of each other that they could have a big show of pay per view, and then being able to take the crew. And I'm talking about lighting. Uh, television crew and wrestlers and move them to another town and do a show almost as big, probably bigger with nitro uh, than a pay-per-view the very next night. So you had to have a two, you had to schedule it to where there were two towns very close. Like for instance, Charlotte, North Carolina and Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I remember that right. in Charlotte, Monday nitro in Chapel Hill. You're talking to what we're talking about right here is sold out. And I remember sold out being in Cedar Rapids and then we had Des Moines, Iowa for Nitro on Monday. Well, so I, I can remember all that. Well, that answers so, my question for why the hell would you guys be in Cedar Rapids? Uh, and uh, just to kind of catch everybody up, this sold-out show we're talking about took place on January 25th, 1997. Uh, sold out, of course, is S-O-U-L-E-D instead of S-O-L-D. But it was actually both. It was sold out. Uh, and this happens at a time when the WWF and WCW are running monthly pay-per-views. ECW hadn't yet started at the pay-per-view game until that April. 
Uh, but I found it interesting here that WCW didn't run a pay-per-view that January, but the NWO did. Mm. Uh, and, of course, we know now that Eric Bischoff had a plan to try to run this as a separate brand. Uh, but if that were the case, I'm curious, Tony, why not try to run two pay-per-views that month just to see if the NWO could stand alone on its own? Was this just kind of something he freestyled once they already had the building and the plan and then just switched it from a WCW pay-per-view to an NWO once it yeah. started to take off? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, uh, those pay-per-views were, were booked well in advance with not only the uh, the arenas but also with uh, with cable operators. So you can't just – all of a sudden, in the first part of January, at least back then, could not say, "All right, we're going to have two pay per views this month." Uh, so that was that was that was freestyling, making the the WCW uh, pay per view event an NWO pay per event, and see how it went. That's what that was. And the uh, the kayfabe reason that the NWO <laughs> has a pay per view here is because they've won the Fall Brawl, uh, the War Games in September mm-hmm. of '96. Um, when do you remember? this topic of it being an all NWO pay-per-view and, and trying to make a run as it being a separate brand. When did that really start? Of course, the NWO starts in May. Uh, well, I guess technically July of 96. Here we are now, you know, a handful of months later, six months later. When do you remember that conversation first coming up? I think when the NWO first started and especially when Hulk Hogan joined and, and, I think, and and Eric became a part of it. If we recall, Eric was the first announcer for Nitro, right? And then he, once he became part of the NWO, they used me on Nitro. I think going all along, there was thought that man, this is so hot, we're probably going to have to look at doing our own, having a separate brand. So I think that was probably once uh, that was established, NWO was hot. I, I, I had heard about talk like that all along, hoping that we would get there, and now here by January of. 1997 i guess we thought we were there one of the biggest um you know predicators of, of who gets a push and why get why they get a push and to the level of their push and all that in the wrestling business is merchandise and it's worth mentioning that the nwo is smashing here not only in the ratings but also they have the hottest shirt in the business by a wide margin uh, and it's so successful that around this time wcw starts kicking around the idea of raising the prices of those shirts just because they think they're leaving money on the table and they were right uh, Tony, you have a unique perspective on this question, though, because you were there for Vince in, in New York in the late 80s and early 90s. And so you were you were there to kind of see Hogan at his peak that year you were there. Uh, how would you compare the sales of the Hulk Hogan shirts during the Hulkamania run to your time with WCW when the NWO was at its peak? Which one of those do you think was the bigger seller? I don't know the exact numbers. Uh, I'm going to use my comma here, Conrad. But fuck, why did you ask me that question? Because I don't know those numbers. Um, well, just but, your opinion. Okay, my opinion was in 1989, I had come from a very small company, right? Jim Crockett Promotions, and all of a sudden I was working for the WWE, and I was doing shows at Madison Square Garden and the Boston Garden. And to me, Hulkamania was the hottest thing I'd ever seen, and it still today is, back in its heyday. I don't I, – I, do you know? Have you seen the numbers that do we sell more NWO shirts than they did WWR uh, than they did Hulkamania shirts back then? You know, it's hard to say. The NWO shirts are still selling today, though, even in 2017, which is crazy yeah. that it's still listed. But yeah. at the yeah. time, it was pretty right. hot, and uh, maybe not so hot. But man, we should be proud if you got one. Is a T-shirt from ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. 
uh, Mr. Shivani has a whole selection of t-shirts there, uh, and you can get your very own. Maybe you need the Tony Thunder shirt. Maybe you need the WHW Uncensored, because uh, Tony uses fuck like a comma. In the Slamboree style, we've got Shivani there. The throwback Nitro logo for what happened when. You've even got a Thompson Thunder. I can't believe I have a Thunder shirt, but I do. WHW, where the big boys play. And then the classic Starcade logo for Shivani and what happened when. Check it out. But I think one of the coolest podcast t-shirts around is the version of the big gold belt that says what happened when it has Tony Schiavone's name right there on the nameplate and then spray painted across it in an NWO style is WHW. But what's cool about this to me is the placement of the, the graphic on the shirt. It's low, it's to the left and it's tilted mm-hmm. because they do that. We wanted this to look like it was Hogan playing air guitar. So when you wear this out in public, uh, <laughs> you have your own little air guitar there with the big gold. It's a pretty cool deal. It's ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And when you pick one of these shirts up, what might happen, Tony? Uh, if you pick up one of these shirts, uh, I may end up coming to your house, grab, taking the, putting the shirt on, uh, and then ripping it off. Uh, and then, like, a la Hulk Hogan, and then, of course, my belly, like the belt, would go low and to the left uh, over my belt. Uh, so it, it may, uh, <laughs> I don't know. You trying to set me up for some shit here? <laughs> well, there was rumor and innuendo that when you uh, bought one of these shirts, Tony Schiavone might call and thank you for the order. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. I have uh, talked to some, uh, I've talked to some really nice gentlemen uh, over the weekend and uh, over the past weekend. Uh, of course, when you order your shirt, uh, I get the sales report. Uh, Conrad does. Uh, your number is on there, and uh, I uh, I turn around and call you. Now let me let me tell you that when I when I call you, it's probably going to say no caller ID. Please understand that I don't want my cell phone number to get out to everybody. Uh, so uh, so anyway, they, I will give you a call. And I had a chance to chat, although not long, because I don't have I don't have that long. Because we're we're starting to, to sell some shirts. Call and, and thank you for being a part of uh, this podcast, and and thank you for being a uh, part of, uh, of 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 the past of WCW. I think it's all uh, I think it's all pretty exciting, and so I will call and I and I will thank you uh, for that. I do I do want to say that my my daughter is getting married, okay, and uh, so I do need all the money I could get. And my wife has been the biggest pain in the ass during this wedding. Oh, so, yeah? What? Uh, what? 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 So my wife... Are you talking about me? No, I'm not talking about you, honey. I'm sorry. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Please, <clears throat> please buy a fucking shirt. Really- <laughs> <laughs> Quickly. <laughs> while I... Yeah. Okay, while, while, while I'm still alive. Okay. Order fast, kids. ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. Oh, wow. This is a fun show. Uh, Tony, were you supportive of this idea of running an NWO pay-per-view in January of 97? Uh, Yeah, I was, Conrad. I I really was. I was. uh, Let me say this about being supportive of WCW. And just hang on one second here now. Three. Okay, she's she's shut the door. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you in the ass. Okay. 
Okay. Oh my God. So uh, where were we? Oh yes, I was. Uh, And let me tell you why, because we all thought it was hot. Sure. We all thought it was good. And, and this is a, this is a big thing backstage. I don't care what anybody would tell you. Um, This was a big thing backstage and I'll guarantee you it still happens today. Okay. There's a lot of ass kissing going on backstage. And there's a lot of, even though the boss may have said something back then, being Eric back that time, and even being Vince McMahon now, even though they would come up with something that you didn't really agree with, you would always go, thumbs up. Well, that's great, man. You're doing a great job. We're all doing great business. Man, I love being here. There's a lot of times, there's a lot of, even though maybe in your mind, that eh, didn't work or that wasn't that good. Uh, there's a lot of ass kissing going on. So not ne- necessarily saying this time was a part of ass kissing, but I think we all agreed that why not give it a shot? Right. Because as you talked about with the, the merchandise being so hot, which is always kind of a barometer for what we did, uh, and the ratings being great, g- give it a shot and see how it goes. So uh, in the February 3rd Observer, Meltzer reports that the uh, event drew 5120 paying a gate of $68,209. It's not a huge number of fans or a gigantic date, and it's way down from Starcade the month before, and it's six days after the WWF ran the Royal Rumble at the Alamo Dome to a much larger crowd and gate. Uh, I'm curious, Tony, do you remember this being considered a success just simply because it was sold out, or did people think, man, we missed the opportunity to run a bigger building here? No, I, I think we all thought it was a success because it was sold out. I don't think the bigger building opportunity came into mind. Now, Eric could have gone back to Breslov or Jester or whomever was working uh, back in those days in uh, in booking buildings and may have said, you know, what the hell are we doing? Uh, but I, I think all of us on the on the on the production line there and I did work in production. You know, l- let's keep all that in mind, uh, Conrad. I didn't work in uh, I did some work with the booking committee. But I wasn't a full-time booking committee member. I did most of my work in production on the TV side. So there's a lot of things that went on in in marketing, in merchandising, in uh, event promotions uh, that I was unaware of. Right. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, I think we were all happy that it was a, a building that was sold out, even though it probably wasn't as big as it could be. You see, the the deal was. And, and and I watched this event back again, and I, would, and I do need to say something about that in a moment, but I watched this event back again, and with the exception of the open of the event, I think I even texted you that, boy, we're seven minutes into it, I, I want to kill myself. <laughs> uh, that's because I going back, and this is all Monday morning quarterbacking stuff, you go back and you take a look, and that open, which was shot, and it was cool, to me was too long. Right. But anyway, I think if you go back and look at that event, you'll you'll realize that you, you can't really tell how big that arena is, but it looked sold out. It, we had people everywhere, and that's the look we were looking for. And if it was a medium-sized building and it looked that way, great. It was better than trying to go to a, a bigger building and putting all the fans on the one side, which is something that we would do down the road. Uh, and I guess we would even do that beforehand because it was always important to look sold out. Perception is reality. Yeah, right, right. Because, you know, Vince had set the standard uh, years and years ago when uh, his television show looked better than anybody's television show. 
Uh, and that's why the WWF back then, now the WWE, one of the reasons it went national because production value uh, and as far as the look of the crowd, it looked like to use a fan, boy, I want to be there because look at all the fans. And as a television, uh, as a TV uh, di- uh, program director, it was a better product than uh, what we had, uh, what they had at uh, what they had in Florida, what they had in Alabama, what the, what Bob Bob Geigel had out in Kansas City. It looked like a bigger p- product, so we wanted things to look big. And our thought was back then, the way to make things look big is to have all the seats filled. And if it was a smaller arena, you know, I couldn't tell how many people were in that arena right. uh, when I when I looked at it. I, you know, I mean, obviously you can tell if you're in a dome stadium, but back then I thought it looked pretty good. Yeah, and um, it was sold out, so it's hard to argue that it wasn't a success. And, and this is somewhat of a risk here. You mentioned a minute ago that this show was ran on a Saturday night, and uh, this is at a time in the business where wrestling fans have been conditioned to doing pay-per-view on Sunday nights. And in recent years, the UFC has struggled with this around uh, New Year's. They would try to do a Saturday night or a Friday night pay-per-view rather than a Saturday night, uh, even just last year. They did it with Ronda Rousey and several years ago with Brock Lesnar. Uh, But here we are on a Saturday night, not a Sunday night. And you may be wondering, well, why did they do that? Well, the next night was the Super Bowl, which we just had last night. Uh, so I, I wanted to know, Tony, the thought behind scheduling a Saturday night show, it seems like you could have bumped this back two weeks and avoided the Royal Rumble and avoided the Super Bowl. And, and the counterpoint to that might be, well, then you're too close to Starcade, but you could have just moved Starcade back. How far in advance were these pay-per-view calendars uh, figured out and, and, and negotiated and why couldn't, why was the smart play here to run it on a different night rather than just changing the date? Uh, you had to book, uh, these events, uh, a year in advance, more than a year in advance, uh, to be able to secure the buildings and to also to be able to, uh, get the cable companies because they had to, they had to promote their, their events. You couldn't really just pick it up and move it. Uh, you know, sitting here, it, it, it just seems, oh, we'll move this here. We'll move this here. I'll go to McDonald's and I'll, uh, order a fucking Big Mac and I'll get it. Uh, you just couldn't do that. Uh, so it was kind of locked in there. That would have been a Saturday. We probably looked at doing a January pay-per-view, and the only logical place we could have uh, done it would have been Super Bowl weekend, and that's why we moved it on Saturday. Um, so I, I think we were kind of locked into that at that time. You know, I don't – even though we were Turner Broadcasting, I'm not so sure I, we, we had as much push or pull, whatever the term you want to use, with the cable operators – uh, as uh, Vince McMahon did back then, to being able to put an event where we wanted to put it. Right. Uh, in the February 3rd Observer, the fans gave this show a thumbs up of only 1.1%. In mm-hmm. the middle was 1.1%. And thumbs down was a resounding 97.8%. Tony, you just said you recently watched this show back. Uh, where would you rate this today? Thumbs up, down, or in the middle? I would rate it thumbs down. Uh do you want me to expand on that or just take uh, We're, we're going to shit all over it in great detail in just a minute. <laughs> I know we are. <laughs> uh, the same edition of The Observer, uh, Meltzer writes, NWO sold out what came off to outsiders as the brainchild of someone intoxicated by his own success to the point of all perspective being lost was the single worst pay-per-view show in the history of pro wrestling. 
It was like WCW copied the worst aspects of the first two weeks of Shotgun Saturday Night and then tried to go even farther to the point it looked like a bar show put on by a person whose brain was so fried by acid that, that only they knew what in the world they were in, and it only had a semblance of resemblance to the pro wrestling show they were attempting to put together. It was even more amazing coming from a company that was on its biggest role in history and is loaded when it comes to talent depth, neither of which were apparent. Tony Dave was pretty critical of Eric here. Do you think this was a fair assessment? Uh, I think some things were uh, pretty fair in that. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, I, I think that the, uh, the brainchild of someone intoxicated by his own success is a, is a rip on Eric. Uh, and, uh, I think, uh, a person whose brain is so fried by acid, only they knew that, uh, what world, that world they were in and whatever. I, I just, yeah, it was, he was ripping on Eric there. It, look, it was bad. And we understand that looking at it now. Uh, but apparently, uh, back at that time, Eric wasn't too friendly at Meltzer and that was Meltzer taking his shots at Eric. Uh, well, it was which, uh, it was certainly a miss. So uh, yeah, it was a miss. I, I, I found it ironic that the show starts off with members of the NWO riding on the back of garbage trucks and waving NWO flags through the snow covered streets. Yeah. The the irony of this being such a terrible show when it starts with garbage trucks. The, garbage, yes. Uh-huh. That scene was shot the night before with a police escort, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was that was pre taped the night before. Uh, and uh, with a police escort and set up and uh, and and again, again, uh, Monday morning quarterback. You look at that; it was way too long, right? Uh, because uh, by the the third or fourth person looking into the camera and saying, "We're going to change the world. What a night it's going to be." Okay, I understand that we had had enough of it. Then you see him walking into the building, and then you see Eric up on the uh, podium uh, doing his uh, his. State of the Union, State of the NWO Union. By that time, uh, as a fan, now I'm looking at it as a fan, not as somebody on backstage. Right. But looking at it as a fan, I'm thinking, ooh, ooh, we better get on with the shit here, boys, because we ain't got nothing going on right now. Well, I think a lot of times you, uh, back then, you would uh, you would rip on a pay per view two ways, uh, well, three ways if you're Meltzer. If Tony Schiavone was doing the broadcast, you hated him. <laughs> that was number one. Uh, number two. Uh, a lot what the non-action involved, and if you'll recall going back and looking at this, I know we'll touch on it, a lot of the non-action during this event was pretty fucking shitty. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, probably more than anything else, the quality of the match. Uh, so I think all those things together uh, made for a pretty lousy pay-per-view. But it feels very NWO. The whole show does. It was well done in regards to being, you know, lots of black and white. The interest set yeah. looks a lot different. Uh, the a, mats, very, a very biker theme to it. Yeah, and the, and the mats around the ring were covered with black carpet. Um, just lots of uh, of cool stuff here as right. far as the presentation goes. Who would have been the crew who put that together just as far as pay-per-view sets and stuff like that? Well, we, they we always employed uh, we always employed a, a lot of a lot of different people who I didn't know, uh, you know, from pyrotechnics people uh, to uh, video screen people uh, that were just employed on not a full time employees, but uh, but a lot of this has to a lot of this look has to go with what Eric wanted, 
and what guys like Craig Leathers and Keith Mitchell, uh, who ran production, uh, what they uh, what they had done. Another person that was very involved in this uh, was David Crockett. David was the type of guy that if we needed garbage trucks, David Crockett contacted a garbage company and made sure that uh, the trucks were were there and uh, contacted the police department for their help. Uh, or if we were going to blow up a limousine or destroy a limousine, David Crockett would be the man getting the limousine. So he worked pretty hard behind the scenes in getting all that done as well. So there was a lot of people that that went into that look. I know it's a look that Eric wanted, uh, and I know a lot of people worked very hard on that to get it done. You know, uh, I, 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 I want to say this too, and, and I kind of uh, – you know, I kind of said something about Meltzer right there. You know, anytime Shivani was doing a pay-per-view, it was shitty. Uh, and I did that tongue-in-cheek. But I think we all realized back then that Dave Meltzer, and probably even so today, had a profound influence on the business. Yeah. I, I know he – I know at times he probably would say, no, nah, I really don't. I, I'm kind of like a – I'm just a critic. you damn right. It, it was like having a – we were like Hollywood or, or let's say uh, Broadway producers – uh, coming to having our opening night, and then the next night thumbing to the New York Times to see what the uh, what the opinion was on the show, what right. the critics thought about it. I mean, Meltzer's opinions back then really, really had a profound impact on the business, uh, and uh, I'm sure he knows that. Uh, but be that as it may, there was a lot of really, really hard work that went into these shows, really hard work, and and a lot of good people put a lot of time and effort into it. So when Meltzer would say the next day, it was a shit show at that time, we would all kind of go, Oh man, what the fuck? You know what they, you know, he didn't like us. Fuck him. Shit like that. And now here we are flash forward 20 years later and a look at us say, Oh, that motherfucker was right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, Oh my God. I just want to throw that out. But he, he did. He had a profound Im- impact on it. And, uh, you know, I mean, the boys read all the stuff. I know Eric did. Uh, I did. I wasn't a subscriber, but it was always kind of passed around. Uh, and uh, and so that's the way uh, things went back then. Bischoff and DiBiase did commentary for the show. Tony, you're a professional broadcaster. How would you rate Ted and Eric's performance on the show? Uh, I think it was okay for what they wanted. I think it was for what they wanted at that time. I think it was good. I think if you listen to the broadcast, you'll, you'll find Eric – uh, laps back into some sincere play-by-play. You know, he'll be in the midst of running down somebody or telling everybody how great the NWO was and how the world was going to change and how we're not looking back and how this is the face of professional wrestling uh, in the future. Uh, and then all of a sudden he would lapse back into some when he would see a couple of good moves play-by-play. But it was mostly Eric and and uh, DiBiase, uh, two guys who could, certainly can talk and uh, Eric had done some announcing, you know, that's how he started in WCW as announcer. So he was a pretty good announcer, a uh, very good announcer, actually. Uh, but it, it became a, a it became a, a two hour and 45 minute heel promo. Right. And that was it was way overdone. It was it was too much. You know, uh, it was it was too much. I mean, it was pretty apparent that the WCW in, in this world of that night, WCW was the babyface, NWO was the heel, NWO ran the show, okay, and we, all the babyfaces were either going to get buried by the announced crew or they were going to get screwed over 
by the official. And if WCW won something, it would be, and we'll go on, I'm sure we'll go into the matches later, it would be just by a mistake. So the, even the, the heel babyface thing works, but if the heel has complete control of the, sh- of the ship, to me now looking back on it, it doesn't work for the entire two hours and 46 minutes. Masahiro Chono is wrestling Chris Jericho in the first match. Uh, Chono is touted as being one of the top guys from New Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, mm-hmm. Jericho comes out to the ring with no music, and there's not a traditional ring announcer, but a voiceover guy coming through the PA system announcing the wrestlers. Now they're doing it tongue-in-cheek where the guy rips on the WCW boys and puts over the NWO guys, and uh, this is the classic voice behind the NWO. Who was that guy, Tony? Uh, that was a uh, one of our producers. His name is Neil Pruitt. He's still in television. I, I don't really talk to Neil as much as I should. Uh, but Neil was a pretty pretty creative guy. And Neil, uh, when we had some of these uh, shoots, uh, some of these video shoots, Neil would be in charge of those. And uh, Neil had a that was Neil had kind of a raspy voice anyway. And so they used his voice for all this. Neil Pruitt, P R U I T T. You can write to him at. Yeah, he's on LinkedIn if you're into that and you'd like to yeah. uh, check him out. He's done a lot yeah. of stuff from Lockheed Martin to Primerica, yeah. Boys and Girls Club, Cartoon Network, Chick-fil-A, all over the place. Uh, but, of course, he did a lot with Turner as well. Chono wins this match after about 11 minutes with the Yakuza kick and a match that Meltzer gave two stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple things to note about the match. They did a table spot, which yeah. was kind of uncharacteristic of WCW at the time beyond uh, a public enemy match. Um, this feels like it has a little bit of an ECW inspiration. Uh, do you remember ECW becoming a topic of conversation in the office? And, and when would that have been? Don't know when it would have been, but I think we knew, uh, what ECW did, the hardcore stuff that they did. And I do think this was a result of what they had been doing. Uh, uh, I don't remember when that, when that started though, at that time. Uh, during the match, they show Sherry Martell, the Harlem Heat, Mongo, Arn Anderson, and our favorite, Deborah McMichael, uh, coming Woo-hoo. out and sitting Woo-hoo. in the crowd. <laughs> I don't want to do that too much. Come some slap dick out there may think I'm a creep, but anyway. Oh, well, uh, I mean, you admitted it last week. You're, uh, you're just an old creep now, according to the girls <laughs> at Starbucks. Uh, Randy Anderson's there, the faces of fear there, and they're watching the crowd in the show or watching the, the show from the crowd. And, and I guess that makes sense for a couple of these guys. And we'll get into why in a minute, but what was the thinking here? Why not just give some of these guys the night off? What purpose does it serve for us to see Ming in street clothes watching a Chris Jericho match? Well, number one, you go give guys the night off in Cedar Rapids, Iowa with three feet of snow. That's number one. So what the fuck? Right. Let them hang out. And, you know, a lot of those guys, Arn Anderson, worked behind the scenes. Sure. So they, so they were there anyway. They were going to be there anyway, probably, because I think we all wanted to see what was going to happen. So as far as getting the night off, yeah. But in hindsight, having them in the audience and just watching, in theory, okay, this uh, a new organization trying to take us over. We're going to take it. We're going to watch and see exactly what they got. Uh, in theory, that works pretty good. But as the show went on, when they didn't get involved in it, with the exception of Randy Anderson, it didn't really amount to much, but wasting their time. Uh, during this match, Bischoff can't help himself and says something like, Look at all the fans standing in the crowd. This is the real deal. We're not talking about giving away free tickets at the 7-Eleven. 
Uh, and this is a direct shot at the WWF and their Royal Rumble pay-per-view from the week prior. It drew a huge crowd, uh, and we broke down in great detail that 1997 Royal Rumble over on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. If you'd like to hear more about that, which was the WWF's January 97 pay-per-view. Do you remember the idea of Vince stepping out and booking a dome at a time when he is clearly second place in the ratings and, you know, you're normally running four five and 6,000 seat buildings to then running a dome. Was that something that was talked about in the office? It was not. Now look, I'm, I'm curious when you, you and Bruce talked about that, did Vince, uh, run that dome, uh, uncharacteristically at that time yes very much so the pay-per-view before had less than the the month before had less than five thousand people in the building Mm -hmm. uh raw the next night would have around five thousand people there so to try to run a you know 60 or seventy thousand setup was Mm -hmm. a big undertaking and they did lots of partnerships and they did give away a lot of tickets but i'm curious why does you know, the old Vince adage that we've heard is if you're number one, you never talk about number two. If Bischoff is clearly number one with WCW here, why is he continually taking shots at the WWF at this point? That's the way he was. That's that, that's the way that was Eric's thought process. I remember talking to Eric about this. Uh, and I'm not so sure it was us individually one on one or with a group. But I remember Eric saying at one time that they the, our fans know exactly what they're doing. Why should we ignore it? We should not ignore them because who are we trying to fool? But I always thought it was wrong, and, and that was me. And again, maybe as a good employee, I should have said, Eric, that's wrong, but I never did that. Uh, but that's my own personal feeling. That was not his personal feeling. That's why we did that. Uh, it's like you know, Coke never talked about Pepsi. Right. Pepsi always talked about Coke. Absolutely. Uh, McDonald's never talked about Burger King. Burger King always talked about McDonald's and who was always number one. McDonald's always and Coke Coca-Cola. And McDonald's. Yeah. Right. Uh, even, a, even a young man from Alabama can figure that out. Money can figure out Coke and McDonald's. And by the way, the Piggly Wiggly store in Cordova, Alabama. <laughs> uh, funny note here. The fans <laughs> start chanting USA at Chono. Yeah, uh, his opponent, of course, Chris Jericho from Canada. From Canada, right? Well, there you go, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and say, "Oh, those fans are fucked up," but uh, you know, the, somebody started chant, and the fans are fired up, and it's the first match. Why not? You know, hang on with it. You know, I've heard. Listen, I, I do college basketball down. I hear much worse chants going on in college basketball arenas by some of the young minds that we have in college getting ready to lead our country. Well, roll tight on that. We should mention here that Nick Patrick is a longtime WCW referee who has since turned heel and joined the NWO by this point. So he's the referee for every single match on the show. Tony, this is a big deal. We would never see a ref do every match on a show these days. This is asking a lot of Nick Patrick here, is it not? Yeah, it is. If you watch the show and notice, a lot of times when they were introduced, they would go to the uh, entryway and that long staircase they had, you would see Nick come back out. Uh, he would go in the back and I, I guess uh, wipe down and get something to drink uh, so he could uh, he could perform the next match because, I mean, we, we, we've seen it before. You've seen every match. The great referees work pretty hard in the ring, too. It's very physical for them at times, too. So uh, it was very unusual to see that. Now, combine a heel referee through the entire show 
with heel commentators the entire show, you could see why it kind of wore on you as it went along. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's he's here not dressed like a traditional referee either. He's wearing uh, black jeans, an NWO shirt, and an NWO baseball cap. Uh, and the heel ref is an interesting idea. Do you know who would have thought of this idea? And tell everybody Nick Patrick's background in the business. I'm sure some younger fans may not be uh, familiar with that. Uh, well, who would have thought of the idea would have been the booking committee along with Eric would have thought of the idea. And, uh, uh, Nick Patrick, uh, when he first started, wanted to be a wrestler, uh, but an injury held him back. Uh, he was the son, is the son of Jody Hamilton, uh, the mask assassin, who also worked on the booking committee and was uh, one of the great guys in the business. I think you may have heard me say last week uh, when I talked about the position where they had the headsets and they would write at the uh, the curtain there where they would send the wrestlers out was called forever. The gorilla position was known as that. We had it. We called it the gorilla position for a little while, but S- Jody would sit there and it became for us the Jody position. Uh, and so Jody Hamilton, I mean, here's one of the things that I, that I invite fans to do to go back and YouTube some of the stuff, some of the promos of the assassins. And listen to some of Jody Hamilton's interviews. Jody Hamilton was a very uh, underused talent as far as mic skills are concerned. He was one of the greats. He really, really was. Uh, and Nick was his son, so he was in a wrestling family. Uh, and Nick was just a good, hardworking guy behind the scenes. Are you uh, are you saying that y'all really called it the Jody position? That's what yeah, it was referred did. to? Yeah, we called it at times we called it the Jody position. Wow. Because Jody, Jody was always there. Hmm. Interesting. But I mean, forever in a day, it's going to, it's going to always be the gorilla, the gorilla position. I know that. Yeah. Uh, uh, because back then, and, and I'm talking about 89, when I was there, uh, gorilla monsoon, you know, he was a, you know, he was a very big and intimidating personality and really controlled things. Uh, and, uh, back then when the bell rang, he would tell the wrestlers when to go to the ring. He really directed the wrestlers to the ring. Uh, because they would tell, they would tell gorilla, go to the ring. Uh, and with, when it became the Jody position, it, it changed a little bit. Uh, it was more of a a place where like a bullpen, you made sure that everybody was ready to go. Um, but, uh, yeah, it'll always be known the gorilla position, but we did call it the Jody position at times. So Jody Hamilton, father of Nick Patrick, uh, long way for a short story. Uh, let's get to some uncomfortable stuff here. Uh, at this point in the broadcast, they start showing us pictures of women who've submitted their applications to become Miss NWO. And I think I, my wife may have submitted her application to become Miss NWO. Did we see her picture on there? I'm not sure. No, I'm kidding. Wow. Just, just another little shot over the bow. See here, when when we're done, you're a lucky man. When we're when we're done, I got to go talk to her. You don't. Go ahead. Uh, I'm sure these are nice ladies, much like your wife. Uh, and, and they're obviously oh, okay. fans like everyone yes, listening to this podcast. Right. Uh, but they're showing these pictures at this point to ridicule the women. And, and this does not age well. It just feels ugly. Um, yeah. I mean, here in 2017, uh, we would have been, uh, crucified, wouldn't we? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, you're right. Uh, to the point to where I really thought when I saw those, uh, when I saw those happening at that time, I don't, I don't know who picked them out and I don't know who decided to shoot those. I thought they were gimmicks yeah. at that time, but I guess they weren't as we go along. We found out they really weren't. So, 
So yeah, that was uh, that was really well. That was creepy. Yeah. That was like an old, that was like an old fuck just uh, slobbering over looking at Deborah McMichael. Something like that. Something like that. Uh, yes. In in the segment, they introduce us to Jeff Katz, who Meltzer would refer to as Bischoff's quote teenage protege. Yeah, okay. uh, I, I believe this was Jeff's first and last appearance. What was Jeff's role in the company? Why was he selected to do this? And what did Meltzer mean with that nickname, Bischoff's teenage protege? Uh, well, he was he was young. That was that was why he was his, uh, the teenage uh, uh, moniker on that. The uh, cats, if I recall, uh, was worked in radio in Detroit, uh, and. Um, I'm trying to think if it was Zane Bresloff listened to him and said, this kid is really talented. He got to know Eric. Eric wanted to use him. Uh, and we used cats, I think, with a 900 number and some – I don't know how active we were and any was, anyone was back then in web-based stuff. Uh, but uh, he was a pretty talented kid. And um, I think he's gone on now to work in Hollywood a little bit since then. Uh, you can look that up. I think he tried to do some wrestling. In Hollywood. So uh, I thought, just an opinion here on what he did, I thought he did as well as he could in that situation where he would ask women questions that they were not prepared to answer, that they didn't know what were coming. And we were we were going to have these girls ad lib these answers and ended up being really, really bad. I thought he reacted to some of those quite well. I thought he was a pretty, pretty talented little kid. I thought he was a pretty talented teenage protege. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Let me uh, get it right. By the way, to add to that, I do need to say for all those uh, all those uh, so-called wrestling journalists out there, and you know who you are, I really appreciate some of you. I really appreciate a lot of you uh, and the nice things you've said. But to try to even uh, get uh, more stars on this podcast, we are doing this from the Tokyo Dome this week. <laughs> We're looking for six stars this yes, week. Yes, we are. Um, Jeff would ask some women who were there on site, uh, what they would do with a big, sexy man like Kevin Nash or what they would do to be in Hulk Hogan's next movie. Uh, mm-hmm. this is just weird kind of sexual overtoned stuff. That's not even scripted. Who booked this shit? <laughs> uh, I don't think anybody booked this shit. I think they just. I think the booking committee came up with this shit. Well, it was not I mean, good. This is not planned, and there wasn't no, a lot it, of planning on this show anywhere, it doesn't seem. Yeah, it, it, no, there, there's no question. I mean, it it drugged the show down. I mean, it, it really, really did. And I can understand women and bikers, and I can understand the look of it and everything, but the delivery of it was was not good. The next match is Big Bubba Rogers versus Hugh Morris with Jimmy Hart. Hugh is oddly wearing jeans and a tie-dye, and I'm sure everyone will deny this being a Dudley-inspired outfit. But he's actually filling in for Conan because yeah. this is a Mexican death match. And the voiceover guy is even referencing Conan here. But Conan was given the night off to do a show in Mexico Tony, how in the world does Conan dodge this bullet? But more importantly, how is he allowed to be booked and promoted for a pay-per-view, but then given the night off to work for a competitor in Mexico? This seems yeah, weird. He, yeah, it's weird, but he, uh, Conan did his own deals. Uh, and I think that was part of the deal that he had worked out with Eric. So, yeah, that was just that was just iceberg of some of the, the silly shit that went on behind the scenes, you know? It just seems like, you know, if you don't think the guy's going to make it, here's an idea. Use somebody else. You know, just crazy shit like that. 
Right, and don't call it, a, you know, again, when you advertise it, a Mexican death match, and you don't have a Mexican in it, and you still come up with a Mexican death match, you know, something's fucked up there, buddy. Yeah, it's worth reminding you, this Mexican death match is held in Iowa with no right. Mexicans in the ring. Yeah. Uh, just outstanding. I'm sure, I'm sure there are a lot of great Mexicans in Iowa. Maybe. Like say that being very politically correct. Uh, well, there's no wall around Iowa, so we got that going Not for yet, us. buddy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Bubba wins the match, uh, and it's a match that Dave gives a star and a half, and he wins it by countout after nine minutes, where Hugh misses what might be the worst moonsault in history, but in fairness, it is off the entrance steps. Uh, so naturally, Bubba does what everyone would do and run him over with a motorcycle. So to recap, the first match had a table spot. The second match, we're running over people with a fucking motorcycle. And as a reminder, this is a Mexican death match held in Iowa with no Mexicans. Uh, who's in charge of creative at this point? This is well, fucking ridiculous. Okay. Uh, well, well, obviously, it's who's in charge of creative is Eric and the booking committee at this time. Now, you may ask who's in the booking committee. It changed so many times. Uh, Conrad, I'm not so sure. I, I know that uh, Kevin Sullivan was always a big part of it. Uh, Terry Taylor was, uh, and this was obviously before, uh, Vince Russo came in and all that. Uh, but, uh, and Eric was a part of it. Um, I'm not so sure Jody would have been sitting in on those booking committee meetings, but again, it goes back to Eric and the booking committee for, to come across on that. I remember thinking when he jumped on that motorcycle, I remember thinking, watch that motherfucker not start. <laughs> watch it not what well, started and as a result i thought and, and i went back and looked at it again i remember thinking at that time and now thinking again that hugh morris took probably as good a bump as you could take yes without being hit by a motorcycle and trying to make it look good yes Don't you think so? he Absolutely. did a great job on that yeah and, and Bill was a, bill's a good worker man it's worth mentioning that hugh is uh devastated here of course because he's counted out i mean he just got ran over by a fucking motorcycle a fucking motorcycle but he's on nitro the next night and uh this time he's not wearing his dudley gear but he's also not wearing any neck braces casts or any other semblance of anything that would remind you that he was ran over by a fucking motorcycle two days prior right uh why wouldn't you even mention this on nitro you're the commentator here come on mr commentator defend this shit yeah i'll defend it fuck it okay <laughs> That's how I can defend it, because if they're not going to if they're not going to guide me and tell me what to say, then I don't. I just okay. If we can throw a giant off the building and he lives, okay, not just lives, wins the belt later. Yeah, wins the belt. Okay, if we can wrap up a guy who can't work worth shit in in a yeti and call him the yeti, hell, we can do anything, Conrad. Yeah. You can yeah, you know, just you can just gotta. It's all fantasy. It's all in your mind. Don't don't don't. <laughs> God, it's ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I, I can. Uh, let me tell you this too. It, it it brings up a story. We were meeting. Uh, we had a meeting at Hulk Hogan's house, one of his houses, and this came right out of. Do you remember the uh, the uh, the dungeon? Uh, was it the Dungeon of Doom? Yeah. Who was it? Was it well, we had King Curtis setting the throne and everything? That's right. Okay, and uh, this is when uh, I don't know they did something really bad to Hogan, and my reaction on TV was terrible, according to Eric. 
And Eric told me that day at Hogan's house, he said, that reaction was so shitty. I wanted to reach through the TV and grab you by the neck. And he said, and I said, well, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I'm sorry, but I had no guidance here. And I remember thinking, you know, maybe they want me to take the ball here and be part of creative and have my own spin on it. But here I am waiting for guidance on what to say and shit like this, be it build a mop with no brace uh, brace or the giant falling off or the fucking Yeti coming, which is, by the way, I'm sure we're going to talk about in other episodes. I can't wait to talk about that motherfucking angle. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Let's talk yeah. about the next match on the card. Let's get this shit over with. It's, so, sorry. Let's yeah. it's, uh, so, uh, anyway, I understand, but for you, a fan to sit out there and say, who booked this shit? Well, damn it, Conrad, you know who booked this shit? The booking committee did. Eric Bischoff is the head of the booking committee, but underneath him is Kevin Sullivan and Terry Taylor. Those are the names and, I was looking and for. And I'm, I'm, I'm also going to miss some guys here, and I'm sorry. I really am. There were some other guys involved in that at that time. So uh, The next match on the show is Jeff Jarrett and Michael Wall Street. Wall Street had been everywhere and done everything, from Varsity Club to IRS to now this Wall Street character. And WCW is referring to Jarrett here as Double J, which is a name that WWF made famous for him. Tony, do you remember there ever being a conversation about not referring to Jarrett as Double J because of the WWF maybe having some sort of claim? No, I don't remember that at all. I mean, we all called him Double J. And uh, no, I don't remember that. There's a tale of two Jarrett's in WCW. He would have okay. two runs here. He would have this run where he's kind of booked to look like a geek. Uh, and then he would leave, go to the WWF, uh, and then come back after the China situation where his contract had expired. He dropped the Intercontinental belt in a good housekeeping match there. And then comes back and is positioned as a main eventer. But that Jeff Jarrett as a main eventer shit is not happening here at Sold Out. Uh, the story in this match is Deborah is really concerned for Jarrett. So she has Steve McMichael come in from the crowd and use his trademark Halliburton to hit Wall Street and then intimidates the heel referee, Nick Patrick, in accounting the pin for Jarrett after nine minutes in a match that Dave rated a dud. Uh, Tony, what were your two favorite things about this match? Deborah McMichael. The left and the right. Thank you very much. Conrad Thompson, he's catching on quickly. Yeah, two shows nightly. Tip the waitress, try the veal. Uh, after the match, they continue this Miss NWO shenanigan. And this time, I guess it's the senior division because Jeff uh, is asking a woman on a motorcycle, what part of her body did she feel would help her win the contest for Miss NWO? And uh-huh. she says her feet. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck this is. He goes over well, to another I, woman. Go ahead. It's uh, once again, it's not preparation. Right. You know, uh, any chance uh, again, Vince allows this uh, to, to be not prepped like this? It feels like no. Vince would have micromanaged the shit out of this. Yeah, there's no question he would have. And there's a lot to be said about being a micromanager. And, and I've worked for people who have been micromanagers and they're pains in the asses. But then when you come to a show like this, uh, there's no question that uh, you need a micromanager. When you got something going on like this, obviously uh, – that was a girl not expecting that question, not knowing what to say. I mean, we all know what we wanted her to say, right? Sure. Yeah. But she combated with her feet. 
Uh, lots of other silliness here. Asking a lady what she would use to buff Buff Bagwell's biceps with. Mm-hmm. Um, just silliness. The next match yeah. is Buff Bagwell against his former American Males tag team partner Scotty Riggs. Yeah. And, and Meltzer wrote about Riggs. Riggs is so not over, he's under. Uh, that's a great line, but it's a shame because I've always thought Riggs came off like a good dude. Buff gets the yeah. pin here after nearly 14 minutes. With a finishing move, he debuts. It's the Blockbuster, uh, mm-hmm. and it's worth mentioning in late November, a couple of months prior to this on Nitro, the NWO did an open invitation for the next 30 days for anyone from WCW to jump ship and join the NWO. Buff was the first person to accept, and I'm sure we're going to talk about Buff Bagwell specifically in the future, um, but this is the first time, and he's been with the company like six years here, uh, whose idea was it to turn him heel? Because this is the first time that he's been a heel. Would this have been something he asked for since it looked like the NWO was going to be the hot angle for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I think he would have wanted that. And I also think that there was a there was a feeling that Buff Bagwell, uh, Marcus Alexander Bagwell, as he was called when Dusty was booking, uh, that Buff Bagwell, even though he had a, a magnificent body and, and a great smile, uh, he was a better heel than he was a babyface. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and and I think I think and I think it really worked. You know, I, uh, Buff was a, a very had a very outgoing personality, and I kind of think the the Buff Bagwell we, we had, that we saw as a heel in the ring uh, was kind of the Buff Bagwell that we saw behind the scenes. So I think it all kind of worked with him and and that character. I can I can remember. Well, I'll save that Buff Bagwell to another Buff Bagwell. I got a Buff Bagwell story about me and Buff. It's We'll, we'll save it for later, okay? Uh, to recap this show, Meltzer wrote, This show, based on crowd reactions, and that it's an NWO show and a sea of NWO shirts, saw the NWO wrestlers get booed, or in many cases, ignored in nearly every match, Sands, Hall, and Nash's tag match. While the NWO is over, the NWO name can't get anyone over. The NWO's popularity is Hall and Nash. Hogan trying to play heel and rogue babyface at the same time is still both a big drawing card based on his past and an obnoxious bore based on his present. Mm. The rest of the guys are guys who weren't over, dressed up with the same cool t-shirts as those in the crowd, but still couldn't get over. Now, Tony, we're going to talk about the NWO for years to come, but do you think this open invitation hurt the angle in hindsight? And if so, do you remember there being one particular member or when they joined, you thought, well, this has jumped the shark now? Uh, I don't know if I can remember any one, but I do believe it got watered down. And it, it came to the point to where on, uh, on WCW Saturday night, which all of a sudden because, have you know, let's face it, back in the 80s, WCW Saturday night was the thing that drove the ship. As Dusty used to say, was the mothership. Uh, he even said that on his commentary. Uh, but then all of a sudden it became Nitro and it became Thunder. And uh, WCW Saturday Night was – the old WCW show was kind of pushed down and it, it no longer meant that much to what we were doing. Back then, uh, only only guys you saw on WCW Saturday Night were what I kind of considered the knockoff NWO members. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it got watered down in a hurry. Uh and I don't know if the if the idea was we're going to all of a sudden make everybody NWO and we're going to make just have everybody move over to the side or not. But I don't know if you can if there's one guy that you can say, uh, I know 
when we use Vincent as the, secu- the head of security, uh, and then they started using Vincent as a wrestler, uh, that wasn't that good. Uh, and uh, but no, it just it just became more and more and more and more. And the more you got, the more watered down it got. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, somewhere in these NWO Miss NWO segments, Katz makes mention of Vince wearing hair pieces and cheap powder blue suits. Of course, he's yeah. taking a shot at McMahon. Yeah. Uh, and then he asks a woman if she would dress in sexy lingerie with Vincent. She says she would. He mm-hmm. asks another woman if she would help Scott Norton with his flashing problem. She said he mm-hmm. would. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next match is Scott <laughs> Norton against DDP. Uh, Norton wins the match by count out after about nine minutes. And this is the only time sting is shown the entire show. He's shown yep. in the balcony during this match. Uh, and at the end we have Vince, uh, Bubba wall street and Bagwell come down and, uh, they all try to give DDP an NWO shirt during the match, but he rips up the shirt, gives Norton a diamond cutter, punches them all. And then runs into the crowd before Nick Patrick announces that Norton is the winner uh, this is another silly finish here, and this feels like a pattern. This doesn't seem like something Kevin Sullivan would have booked, though, to me. Uh, I know he books for heat, but there's lots of non-finishes here. Is there consideration when you see a run sheet like this of how many, you know, guys are paying twenty seven ninety five at home to watch this, and you're not finishing anything up to this yeah. point, really? Right. Well, it's it's – I mean, you could – I, I, listen, I, I don't think you can point at W at uh, NWO sold out 97 and say uh, the WCW is on the rise and that is the beginning of where things went wrong. I think there's a combination of things that happened that went wrong for our company. Sure. But I, I, I don't think there's any question that uh, no shows and I can't speak for what happened in house shows, uh, but no shows because I, I didn't follow the house shows. We had TV to do. And that was another part of the business. The no shows and house shows and uh, screw job finishes are two of the things that hurt WCW the most as much as anything else. And if you have a, a non-finish here, I, I'm thinking not not trying to – and I'm not so sure Kevin uh, Kevin Nash was a part of the booking committee at this time or not. I know he became a part of the booking committee. He wasn't here yet. Okay, he wasn't there yet. All right. Uh, well, hell, you, why are you asking me these fucking questions, Conrad? You know all this shit. Okay. Uh, this comes on the heels <laughs> of the January 13th edition of Nitro from the Superdome, which drew more than $100,000 at the gate and more than 10,000 fans. And on that show, DDP would be invited to join the NWO, but instead he gave Scott Hall the diamond cutter. So the guys coming out and offering him this shirt is a continuation of this angle uh, and it's really probably the beginning of DDP's first breakout year in the business, 97. When do you remember, Tony, uh, it being apparent to you that DDP was going to be a major player for the company? Well, I, uh, you know, DDP first started with us uh, as an announcer, if you'll recall. Right. Uh, they, they moved, they put him on with Worldwide Wrestling with me. Uh, and I remember thinking that, uh, and I guess he was, he had been in the uh, the AWA prior to that. Uh I remember thinking back then, you know, this guy's got some talent as far as being able to talk. And then, of course, he, you know, he worked hard to become a, a pro wrestler. I think around this time, I think you go back to sold out. And, and here's another thing, too. You know, a, a lot of guys are feel that we should we should have clean finishes on pay-per-views. And and I understand that, too. But the, a lot of times you just want to uh, push the angle along. 
And uh, if I recall watching this, uh, when they all went in to try to give DDP a shirt on sold out, uh, he got a pretty good pop when he said no, didn't he? Or did he? No, yeah, he got a decent reaction. Did he piece yeah, starting yeah, to get yeah. over in a big so some, way? Here. Sometimes bookers and people uh, trying to uh, trying to do wrestling will look at the pop as much as they will look at the actual finish. Right. So I, I think that, that that's a, what they were looking for there. Uh, the next match is Hall and Nash defending their World Tag Team titles against the Steiner brothers. Pretty yep. decent tag match here with the Outsiders getting the heat on Rick and then building the Scots hot tag. And as the match went on, the crowd actually starts to get behind the Steiners a little bit. Eventually, right. there's a ref bump, and Scott Hall gives Scott Steiner the outsider's edge. But then Rick would give Scott Hall the bulldog off the top rope, which he was using as a finisher. Scott covers him, and Randy Anderson jumps in from the crowd and counts the pin in a match that Meltzer gave two and three-quarter stars. Mm-hmm. This is pretty okay. fun booking for a ref bump. Wouldn't you agree, Tony? Well, oh, absolutely. I, I I liked the match, and I remember liking it at that time. I thought it was a pretty darn good little angle. You know, uh, you can uh, you can use ref and ref bumps. Uh, sometimes they're overdone, but sometimes they're they're very creative. And I thought this was a very creative way to do it. It is not as on the level of uh, the uh, the Hebners and uh, the Million Dollar Man and the two referees looking the same. Uh, remember that back years ago with the WWF. But it was a very, very, I thought it was very creative and a lot of fun. Uh, what we need to talk about here mostly is the next night on Nitro. Bischoff reverses the decision and gives the titles back to Hall and Nash and then fires Randy Anderson to start the show. And the following week after that, so uh, two, two episodes after this, uh, Randy Anderson brings his entire family to essentially come beg for his job back. And Bischoff denies him. Uh, we've since lost Randy. He's passed away, but he yeah. was a staple of WCW. What do you think uh, he would have thought of this famous angle? It seems like he would have been proud to have his whole family involved in something like this. Yeah, no question about it. Randy was a hardworking kid. I thought uh, the the angle with his family and, you know, Randy had those big, sad-looking eyes anyway. I think it all came across pretty good. You know, let let me say this. Not everything we did was shit. (laughs) Sure. No, absolutely. That was very good. And the next match was not shit either. It's a lighter match for the U.S. title. Eddie Guerrero defending against six. Uh, Guerrero is going to grab the belt uh, for the win after 13 minutes and 48 seconds in a match that Meltzer gave four stars Mm -hmm. and called it the best match on the show. Uh, The finish uh, was both men at the top of the ladder, and then Eddie hit six with the belt. Six takes the big bump, and Eddie takes possession of the belt. And if you'd like to take possession of a belt, you don't have to climb a ladder. All you need to do is go to leatherbydan.com. At leatherbydan.com, you're going to see our graphic for what happened when. And right there, you're going to get an exclusive offer for $9.99. That's all it's going to take for you to get your very own custom three-plate nickel belt, any design you want. You could be the podcast champion of the year. You could get an old creepy fuck belt and dedicate it to Tony Schiavone <laughs> and put Deborah McMichael's boobs on either side. You can do whatever you want with this thing. Hey, what the fuck are you trying to do to me here, man? I'm trying to get you over. Oh, thank you. Uh, you can be a champ. It's only $9.99. This is going to be handcrafted leather, not that mass-produced replica shit made over in China. This is the real deal. And uh, you're going to get it in 10 to 12 weeks. He'll even take payment plans and free shipping for under a thousand bucks. If you enjoy the show, cruise on over to leatherbydan.com. Just check it out. You'll be glad you did. 
so Tony, we're in the middle of a good run here for Eddie. Um, yeah. you know, he's just been featured in a match at Starcade for the U S title with DDP. And now he's here in a ladder match that was very well received. And he is one of the first guys to break out of the quote unquote cruiserweight division and really work grid matches for bigger belts. Um, what was your opinion of Eddie Guerrero during this time? Uh, my opinion of Eddie was as it's always been, uh, may he rest in peace, but one of the great kids and one of the great workers of our time. I don't think there's any question. And, uh, and you got to say the same about, uh, six as well. Uh, but, uh, I, I, I thought Eddie and I had a great relationship. He was a Dallas Cowboys fan. I was a Washington Redskins fan. We gave each other shit all the time, but Eddie could really turn it on. And I think the reason they moved him away from the cruiserweight division is that they wanted to move somebody up into the quote unquote heavyweight division that could work like Eddie could work. And, um, so, uh, I have nothing but good things to say about Eddie as a, as a, as a guy, as a friendly guy. Uh, Chavo was another one, liked him a lot. Uh, and, uh, and Hector, uh, but a uh, great kid. And I think we all realize one of the, one of the best workers ever because not only could he, not only could he bump and have great moves, but damn it, Conrad, he could fucking sell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the selling is the lost art of the business. It is a lost freaking art of the business. At least it was as we moved along back then. I know it's different now. I, I understand it's completely different, but to me, uh, anybody that could do all of that and sell, was a tremendous asset to the business. Another asset was Sean Waltman. He's in this match and a big contributor. He was the lightning kid in global one, two, three kid with the WWF. Now he's here as six for the NWO. Uh, and he has been known for being an incredible in-ring performer, but maybe had some issues away from the ring during this time. Uh, he was roasted by Cornette on raw later this year. And then, uh, even fired by Bischoff not too long after that. Do you remember Waltman being difficult to deal with behind the scenes, or was he always a pro to you? Yeah, he was a pro to me. Uh, and I do need to say this. Most of the guys were pros to me. They all felt that they were all good to me because they all felt that, well, if I'm nice to him, he'll put me over. What they didn't realize was it was my job to put you over, regardless if you were a dickhead or not. Uh, but uh, – he was always good to me, and and again, he was a great worker, and I had a lot of time for him. Now, as far as his problems or the business are concerned, I I, I have no, I have no no answer to that because I don't know. But again, he was a pro to me, and again, like you said, uh, and I mentioned earlier, one hell of a worker too. And he's got a hell of a podcast now. It's called X Pack One Two Three Sixty. It's on AfterBuzz. Uh, check it out if you haven't already. He's uh, visiting with some old friends, and uh, he's done everything in the business and well-respected by everyone he's ever been in the ring with. So yeah, give us a yeah. podcast to listen. X-Pac 12360 over on AfterBuzz. Finally, we're at the end of this dreadful Miss NWO contest, Ooh. and they announce each of the final 10 contestants, and they even go so far as to list their measurements and hobbies. Uh, it's safe to say this had never been done on wrestling before, or since uh, Bischoff comes down from the broadcast table and says it's a tie. And then he whispers something into two of the contestants ears and then declares the winner to be Miss Becky. Miss someone, Becky. someone Meltzer described as an overweight mid fifties woman. 
And mm. Eric starts to make out with her, not once, but mm. twice, and then declares it's good to be king. I guess people have different interpretations of what king is. Yeah. Uh, Meltzer wrote at this point, uh, by this time in the show, it was about as much fun to watch as three hours of somebody masturbating. In fact, Ooh. I'm not sure that isn't what we were watching. Tony, were any of these women involved in the company in any capacity? And what was the backstage reaction to this whole bit? Uh, how does Melcher know it takes me three hours to masturbate? Uh, rumor and innuendo? Cause I guess so. Telephone, telegram, telewrestler? Exactly. It actually takes me two hours and 35 minutes to find it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I, the, the reaction was, back then, was, ugh. But I, I think we all kind of thought it was funny. I think there was, wrongly so, uh, I think there was a... a a thing, uh, an underlying thing about, I don't know, biker chicks and heavyset biker chicks. And that's, that's who we're trying to cater impress, to, you oh. know, uh, we probably at the time, and I'm just guessing here, we probably at the time all went, Oh, this fucking sucks. And then when Eric walked in back, we all went, Hey, great job, boss. Hey, super. You did it. So I don't know. She just, Comfortable admitting you're a kiss ass. Yeah, I sure was at times. <laughs> yes, I was. Uh, the next match is the main event. We're finally here. It's the WCW or the NWO world title. However you thought of it at the time. Uh, Hogan is defending the belt against the giant. And we know him today as the big show. We've kind of talked about the first time these guys met being Halloween Havoc 95 with the whole building and the Yeti. That's for another time. Uh, but let's briefly mention that the giant was a heel there, but by August of 96, he's main eventing pay-per-views with Hogan. And this time he's a baby face as the answer to Hollywood Hogan. So on September 2nd, uh, the Monday nitro edition, the giant runs out during a brawl and sides with the NWO flip flopping again and turning heel. Uh, then he wins world war three, earning a title shot against Hogan. But of course, since he's in the NWO, he's not going to do that. Uh, after Starcade, Piper comes out and tells fans they've seen his last match. The NWO doesn't want Hogan to not be able to get his revenge, so they beat him up, and they ask the Giant to choke slam him. The Giant refuses, so Hogan slaps him. Uh, then the Giant grabs Hogan by the neck and demands his title match. Hogan agrees, but as soon as he's released, the NWO jumps on the Giant, kicking him out of the group. So, kids, even back in 96, 97, the Big Show was turning left and right. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm sure we will talk about this a great deal. Another time and probably have multiple shows on the giant, but whose idea was it for him to join the NWO? Would this been, would this have been something that Hogan pushed for because he liked working with him? I think, I, I think very much would have been, I think, don't know. I think it would have been very much something that Hogan would have pushed for because I think we all know, and I think you know, I don't know if we've discussed it, that Hogan was completely in charge of his character. Right. Completely in charge. And I think if you go back and take a look at where Hogan drew some great, great money was with Andre the Giant. Sure. In WrestleMania three. So I think in trying to bring that back and trying to get a, an opponent uh, for Hogan, I think this would have been something that Hogan would have wanted and the, probably the booking committee would have said, okay, let's do it. Well, before we get to the match, let's talk briefly about that January 13th edition of Monday Nitro again. This is the one we just mentioned with DDP at the Superdome in New Orleans. 
well, this is 12 days prior to this NWO sold-out pay-per-view, and it's worth mentioning that WCW smashes the WWF in the ratings here, 3.4 to 2.3. But what's notable about this show is the entire time, Tony, you guys built up the Hogan mm-hmm. Giant main event. Um, and then right before... Uh, you guys go off the air. That's when the match starts. Just a minute before Nitro goes off the air, the bell rings. And uh, it turns out this was really just a ratings ploy for TNT to promote the debut of Robin Hood. Uh, and this was all done by design with lots of stalling to make it work like this. Uh, the actual match only goes about three minutes before the NWO interferes and gives Giant a DQ win. Uh, but what's critical here is that WCW starts advertising that Nitro fans should stay tuned because the match will be shown during the commercials of Robin Hood. Mm. But during the first commercial break, they just run commercials, no wrestling. So the second set of commercials, the second stop set, they do show 30 seconds of the match. And they pretended that this is still live in New Orleans, even though neither guy has broken a sweat. Uh, the third break in Robin Hood is all commercials again, but they do promise to show the conclusion of the match in the fourth commercial break. So during the fourth commercial break, we finally get 40 minutes into Robin Hood, and we see the conclusion of this match, a DQ. Tony, what the hell happened here? How did you hear about this idea? It feels like it would have been something TNT forced you guys to do. Who was for it? Who was against it? What was that negotiation look like? I don't know about the negotiation, but I can tell you right now that we were all against it. Uh, and I'm sure Eric was against it as well. This, to me, encapsulates the core problem of WCW. And that was we were a part of Turner Broadcasting compared to Vince McMahon, which was Vince McMahon and the WWE. Uh, the people above Eric, with the exception of some, I know, uh, didn't give a shit about wrestling. Right. And looked at wrestling, looked down their nose at wrestling. And, you know, again, you're talking about smashing them in the ratings, three, four to uh, two, three. Uh, they noticed that. So they wanted to try to piggyback on the success of wrestling as best they could. And if wrestling was going to suffer, so fucking be it. And wrestling suffered that night. And, and to me, there has there have been stories. And I know Eric's got a Eric has a podcast as well that I haven't listened to. But uh, I'm, I'm sure he has told the story before. I don't know if he has that he had a chance to do a lot of other great things or other things could have been great. Don't know uh, with WCW. But every time the as we call them, the suits of Turner Broadcasting got involved in it, they fucked it up. Uh, and that's why I have no use for that company at all. The only use I have for that company is because Ted Turner was the founder of it, and he was uh, he was ahead of his time. But uh, I, I think a lot of our downfall was, and we can go through it. A lot of our downfall was because we were owned by that company, uh, and because we did things the wrong way. To me, that just smacks of the crossroads of a company not getting giving the fuck about us and making us look like shit. Uh, and so that's what I think about that. Without getting pretty upset about it the new i'm starting to get real pissed off now the new adventures of robin hood is the official yeah. title of the show it ran four seasons on tnt it was shot in france the yeah. final episode uh, ironically is called the return of the giant i don't yeah, know well, why that gives me a tickle but it does yeah you know what you know what they always said about tnt right we know drama yeah, yeah. bull fucking shit <laughs> okay 
Okay. Uh, you know, you know how I know that they didn't know drama because they had the Untouchables movie, the Untouchables movie on with the one with Kevin Costner. Do you remember that? Yeah. And Sean Connery. Yeah. And you, you remember that great, there was the, the great scene to where the woman came in the, uh, the train depot right. with the baby in the carriage. All right. And as she came in the, in that great tense scene, as she came in the, with the uh, baby carriage and Kevin Costner looked at her. They went to a fucking commercial break. Wow. Okay. You don't know drama. Bullshit. Okay. To recap this whole Robin Hood fiasco. Now pissed off, Conrad. Well, everybody likes pissed off, Tony. Right. Uh, WCW has falsely advised this main, uh, advertised this main event for hours. Mm-hmm. They've told people it would air during the commercials when it really didn't consistently. They mm-hmm. only showed them 30 seconds at a time. And they pretended that Hogan and Giant went 45 minutes and that this was all live, even though neither guy ever broke a sweat. Now, uh, Tony, you would be in the loop on this. Uh, Meltzer wrote that WCW and TNT were flooded with phone calls, letters, and faxes complaining about this. And WCW kind of baby-faced it off, saying that this was not the plan they were told of and that TNT was supposed to air the entire match in the first 20 minutes of the show. Do you remember there being a big backlash uh, from fans over this? I certainly do, and I also remember, and, you, and I think you have to realize this, that once we had sent them uh, the match, the, in it, I don't know if we sent the match in its entirety. That's something that Craig Leathers would know. Or if we sent the match in pieces, you know, in pieces or whatever. We had no, again, we had no control over what they were going to air. Right. Or how they were going to air it. So here we got, again, TNT making a decision that impacts – the company, and also impacts the company that's making the biggest ratings for them. So, yeah, that was that was not a good moment for us. Let's get back to sold out. Hogan was accompanied to the ring by the Dallas Cowboys, Nate Newton, Ray Donaldson, and George Teague. Uh, roll Tide. Um, the Cowboys <laughs> seemed to not have a clue what was going on here. Who would have a hookup with the Cowboys, and why the hell are they here and not Nitro? Uh uh, maybe they were going to go to the Super Bowl in New Orleans. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know. It, it goes back to the thing that if you were a pro athlete and had some sort of Name. notoriety, uh, and you wanted to be on TV with us, we brought you in. Sure. That, that didn't get to, you know as we got moving on towards the late nineties. That didn't have. That wasn't a problem anymore. I mean, my God. Eventually, Eric Bischoff took over the Tonight Show. Yeah. You can't get can't get any bigger than that. No, I agree. But but back then, uh, back then, and even way before then, back and I remember back in the uh, the Kip Fridays, uh, we looked for any hook that we could from a a crossover star, uh, country music, um, uh, or football player to get involved. It made us seem bigger and bringing. I don't know who the connection was with those Dallas Cowboys uh, back then, but it doesn't surprise me they were there. Uh, we can't talk about this match and not mention the giant coming off the top rope. Is this the first time you remember seeing him do this? And uh, when did yeah. you guys know he was capable of doing it? Uh, and were there any old timers who thought this went against the old wrestling adage of being a giant? I don't know if any old timers thought about that. I think we all knew that he could move. Right. I think we all knew that he had more athletic ability than anybody his size. And I think they wanted to. Uh, I think they wanted to showcase that. Uh, were there any old timers back then that said, I know, not that I was aware of. I think we all were kind of in awe of what he could do back then. 
The finish comes after 11 minutes, and we see Hogan do the leg drop, but the Giant gets back up and chokeslam him. So Nick Patrick counts the two and says Hogan kicks out, even though he doesn't. He makes mm-hmm. the count again and says he kicks out, even though he doesn't. Mm-hmm. On the third attempt, he pretends that he's injured his shoulder and he couldn't lift his arm. So the Giant chokeslams Nick Patrick. I'll let Meltzer take it from here. At this point, okay. the Jobber crew, Bagwell, Wall Street, Bubba, Six, Norton, and Vince, hit the ring, and the Giant was beating them all up. Notice that Hall, Nash, and Chono had the sense to not be involved in this aspect of the angle. Bischoff runs to the ring and gives Hogan a guitar, and he destroys it over the Giant's back. The Giant survived to fall off Kobo Arena, but couldn't mm-hmm. stand up to a gimmick guitar to the back. Hall right. and Nash then showed up. And Hall pulled down Giant's pants, showing everyone his butt, and then spray-painted NWO for life on his back, minus a star and a half. What would yeah. you think of the match here, Tony? Well, I... Uh I didn't like the I did not like the uh, Nick Patrick not counting one two three. I didn't like that aspect of it. I thought the heat at the end was not too darn bad uh, with the g- guitar shot. Yeah, I understand if he if he survives off of a uh, falling off of a building, uh, why does he sell a guitar shot? I can see the thought process in that, but then again, you know, in theory, if you think about it, if he falls off a building, maybe he's hurt for a little while, but then he comes back in. Uh, so he sold the guitar quite well. I think the spray painting of the, the butt of the NWO, I all thought, all thought that heat afterwards worked kind of well uh, because he was, you know, he was choke slamming everybody and everybody was 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 with it. The the thing that I thought, even at that time, and even by looking at it again, was where was Sting? Right. Uh, why did he make his appearance, you know, back in the show earlier and not make an appearance there? So, I mean, because they were chanting, we want Sting, we want Sting. And if you want to give them what they want, right, end of a pay-per-view or so, have him come in and run them off. But they wanted to, I guess, stretch that out a little bit. So the match was okay, not great. The finish was kind of shitty. The heat at the end was, was to me, was fine. Here's the final numbers for Meltzer on the show. It did an estimated okay. buy rate of 0.47, which is 117,000 buys for roughly 1.31 million, which Meltzer says is basically half of what Starcade did. So he considers it a huge financial flop by that standard. Um, he says this can be attributed perhaps to the idea that fans don't want to pay 27.95 to see what they believe to be screw jobs. And after that Robin Hood fiasco, a horrible match, a horrible ending. It didn't help that the pay-per-view had the same Hogan Giant main event. Bottom line is that NWO is really over to the most serious fans who buy ringside tickets and merchandise, but its appeal to the casual masses isn't nearly what people thought. Do you agree with that, Tony, that it wasn't as over to the casual fan as it was the hardcore? No, uh, here's what I think. I think the NWO was over as a faction, a heel faction, but was not going to be over as a complete different spinoff of WCW. Yeah, that's fair. And I think I think NWO uh, sold out proved that that you can't have an entire heel show, or you cannot have an entire heel. I mean, they were trying to be, and I know society changes as we go along, and I know you know back in the day uh, the fans cheered Ricky and Robert the Rock and Roll Express. Those same fans in '97 wouldn't have cheered those guys. Uh, yeah, but I, I I don't think it was uh, I don't think it was because of uh, the NWA the NWA is not over to casual fans. I think it was just packaged wrong. 
Well, we're hoping to package a good show for you next week. So what we want you to do right now is cruise on over to our Twitter. It's at WHW Monday, and there you're going to find a poll. We want to hear from you. What do you want to hear next week? We've got four different poll topics, and we're going to leave them up all of Monday and all of Tuesday. So cruise on over to WHW Monday and uh, throw down a vote. Topic number one for next week is Super Brawl 2 from 1992. It's on the poll, Tony, because we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of the show, and it's most notable because it was Lex Luger's last match in WCW until 1995. Here's some names on the card. Brian Pillman and Jushin Thunder Liger in a classic for the World Light Heavyweight Championship. Marcus Alexander Bagwell against Terrence Taylor. Ron Simmons against Cactus Jack. Van Hammer and Z-Man against Richard Morton and Vinny Vegas. Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes against Steve Austin and Larry Zabisco. Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton against the Steiner Brothers. Rick Rude against Ricky Steamboat for the U.S. title. And Sting against Lex Luger with Harley Race for the world title. Uh, What might we talk about? What sticks out to you the most about Super Brawl 92? I I think the match with Pillman and Liger sticks out. And anything with Ricky Steamboat in it sticks out with me because he was still, in 92, a damn good performer. Absolutely. You know, we, we had good, we had, if you look at that card, we had Outstanding. great performers on that card. Outstanding. What a loaded card. When you just look at the guys individually and yeah. what their legacies are in the business, it's one of the more loaded cards in history. Starcade 86 is option number two. We've just passed the 30th anniversary of that show. It's most notable for being the scaffold match that we've all heard Cornette talk about. Uh, the names on that card are Brad Armstrong, Jimmy Garvin, Hector Guerrero, Baron Von Raschke, The Barbarian, uh, Crusher Khrushchev, uh, Ivan Koloff, Dutch Mantel, Wahoo McDaniel, Rick Rude, Bill Dundee, Sam Houston, Jimmy Valiant, Paul Jones, Big Bubba Rogers, Ron Garvin, Dusty Rhodes, Tully Blanchard, J.J. Dillon, The Road Warriors, The Midnight Express with Jim Cornette, The Rock and Roll Express, and the Anderson Brothers of Arn and Ole, and then Ric Flair and Nikita Koloff for the world title. Uh, what sticks out to you the most about Starcade 86, Tony? Uh, what sticks out most was that would have been Magnum T.A.'s shot had he not been hurt in a car wreck. Well, lots to talk about on that one. Option number three, the very first Monday Night Nitro. It's worth mentioning we just did the last Nitro on something to wrestle with, Bruce Pritchard. Uh, We broke that down in great detail. I wanted to offer you a bookend companion piece here for the very first Nitro. It's at the Mall of America. It's one day after Lex Luger's contract expires with the WWF when he shows up unannounced. We've got that same Brian Pillman, Jushin Liger match. We've also got Ric Flair and Sting, and we've also got Hulk Hogan and Big Bubba Rogers. Uh, what sticks out to you the most about Monday Night Nitro, Tony? The first one? Yep. Uh, Luger. Uh, Luger is showing up because I didn't even know that was happening. And I, and I was behind the scenes for that one. And, and, and if we pick this first Nitro, we will talk about the creation of the show, the idea. Right. We'll, we'll do all of that before we do the actual show. Final topic next week, topic number four, Super Brawl 1997. We put this on here in case you wanted to go chronologically. This is the next pay-per-view after sold out that was just discussed. Uh, this card is loaded, too. We've got six and Dean Malenko. We've got Conan, Juventud, Super Calo, Cyclope, La Parca. Prince Iakea, uh, Ray Mysterio Jr. Who's your favorite luchador, Tony? 
my favorite luchador is El Shitstorm Viola. Uh, Eddie Guerrero. Fact, yeah, that uh, little that little sawed off motherfucker's over more than ever before thanks to this podcast. <laughs> okay. Uh, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Jericho, the Public Enemy, Harlem Heat, Faces of Fear, Deborah McMichael. Yes, sir. Steve McMichael, Jeff Jarrett, Chris Benoit. Here's a fun one. Chris Benoit with Woman and the Taskmaster with Miss Jackie. Uh, Lex Luger and the Giant against the Outsiders. And, of course, Kevin Nash, or I'm sorry, Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper. And these are the promos leading up to this that were phenomenal. It was uh, Roddy Piper in Alcatraz building this up because it was in San Francisco. So, uh, let's recap all of this. Super Brawl 92 is option number one. Starcade 86 is option number two. The first Nitro is option number three. And Super Brawl 97 is option number four. Tony, of those, if you were voting, and I know you won't, but if you were voting, what would you vote for? Uh, I would vote for probably Starcade 86. Somewhere uh, the Mid-Atlantic Gateway boys are really happy to hear you say that. I'm sure they are. They're good guys. Dick and David are good guys. Uh, I'm voting for Super Brawl 92. That's what I'd like to see. I feel like it's one of the more loaded cards in history just as far as stacked with talent. There's a lot going on in the business at that time. Flair's not there. Luger has been the guy to carry the belt, but now he's headed north. Uh, lots of fun stuff to discuss there. Uh, and if you're into more Tony Schiavone, you should cruise over to midatlanticgateway.com. They've got a multi-part interview going with Tony. Uh, we want to thank them for taking time to go ahead and write about Tony in our new podcast. And if you're digging the show, man, tweet about it. Tell your friends. Go ahead and throw us a uh, review on iTunes and hit the subscribe button. We're having fun getting started with this, and we're looking forward to seeing you next week. And don't forget to pick up a shirt at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. Tony Schiavone will call you. Uh, and and I, I want you to tweet your pictures of your shirts when you get them, uh, and we'll retweet them from the show account. That big gold bell air guitar is the coolest fucking podcast shirt in yeah. the history of podcast shirts. Anything uh, else for you, you this week, Tony? No, you said that, and I didn't. Please buy a shirt. It's going to help my daughter's wedding. It's going to get Lois's ass off my back. Hang on. Okay, she's not listening. Get her off my back. And... Uh, Conrad, good being with you another week. You're the man, buddy, okay? Hey, man, uh, we'll see you next week because what are we, Tony? Okay, Conrad's got a chair and we're desperately out of time. <laughs>